How does the convergence of broadcast, print, and social media impact today's journalists? How do journalists balance their humanity with their objectivity? This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. Campus on the Common provides an expert view into the field of media and communication through the lens of academic experts and industry professionals from Emerson and beyond. In this episode, we'll talk with Cheryl Osley-Jackson, an experienced TV, radio, and print reporter who serves as a journalist in residence at Emerson College. Cheryl Osley-Jackson, you're a journalist in residence at Emerson College, which essentially means you're a person that prepares journalists for tomorrow's world. So what are the skill sets for tomorrow's journalists? I think the big change is that journalists today have to be convergence journalists. You can't just say, I'm going to be a print reporter, a broadcast reporter, or I'm going to write for the web. You really have to be someone who can do all those things. And so I tell journalists, as soon as I start working with them from the freshman level, do a story in multiple platforms. You know, maybe you write a print story and you have a video component, or you write a print story with an audio component. But um, to be a convergence reporter is the media has all come together now. You know, you're not just like when I started the business, I was a newspaper diversity columnist and a feature writer. And that's all I was. And when I switched over to broadcast, that was a problem for a lot of people in the business. Like, what is the newspaper woman doing here? Right. So it's different now. Now, for a journalist that's been in the been in the field for 20 or 30 years, are they sort of stuck in their in their rut, in their pigeonhole or what do journalists who are out there in the field do today if they need the skills to be able to transcend to different mediums? I do think there are people that are kind of stuck in a rut. I, I ended up being a convergence journalist um, probably in 2005 or six, and it was it was literally a, a very new idea, and it wasn't accepted. You were one or the other. Young journalists today, they have already they know how to be Facebook Live. You know they know how to do Snapchat. They're good writers, you know, so they know how to flip this story idea, and it's necessary. I mean, if you work for Time Magazine, they also have, you know, web video, you know, or you might have to write for the web, which some people believe, you know, you write a print story, then you copy and paste it to the web, and it's the same format, and it's really not. So a print story for print is one thing. A print story for the web is something else. And then you have audio and video also as platforms. So are there different techniques applied in terms of journalistic practice for different mediums? Yeah, sure. Like when you're considering a story, whether it should be a video story, you have to consider, do I have good video? What's the video going to be? And so if you think about either an event that's already happened or a crime that's already happened, if you don't have file video, it might not be a very good video story. Um, And then maybe sometimes you have an audio uh, story that ends up being a print story because either the person you interview um, doesn't come off well, maybe they're sincere, but, you know, um, maybe their voice distracts from the message or, you know, that's sort of an editorial decision. So, yeah, some stories are better video stories. I've never, um, most of the time you jump in the truck with a photog to go do a story and they're going to say, what's our video going to be? You know, what is the video going to be on this story? If, if it's if it's not breaking and it's already happened, how are we going to create video? Now, was there a watershed moment when convergence of media became apparent? I think so. I think maybe a few years later after I started doing it, I started meeting other people, maybe, um, you know, around 2010, 11, it started to be something that uh, we taught at journalism schools 
and something people were expected to do. I was expected when I worked for Channel 6 in Indianapolis to flip my story to a web story. Um, my very first job in television was at WSBT in South Bend, and they were owned by the Tribune newspaper in the city. So my job was to do a video story and then flip it for the morning edition into a print format. And at that time, there were very few people who could do that. The new journalists in the last, I've been teaching maybe a decade, uh, these students know how to do that. They, 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 they're comfortable with all those mediums. Now we have to teach them the proper format for those kinds of things, but they're not uncomfortable if they're a print reporter, they're not uncomfortable with the equipment for an audio or video story. So you're given one opportunity to do an interview with somebody. Knowing that it's going out in a variety of different medias, would you prepare in that situation differently than if you were just doing, say, a podcast or something that you know would be for print? I think a good interview is a good interview. And so that means that, you know, if um, what someone says uh, provoked by an interview, a good a good interview question provokes a good response, that response could be a good response in audio, video, or in print as a quote. So I think if you're a good interviewer, then you come back with what you have. Sometimes you, there's nothing you could have done about it as a journalist to turn it into a good video story. Now there's, there's some really good video stories that are video poor. You know, it's a story I still have to tell, um, but the event has already happened or specifically in crime. So um, then sometimes you have to kind of create the video around, you know, using uh, paperwork from a case, say, or something like that. But video reporters still have to tell those stories, but a really good team will come up with video that supports the story but it is really creating the video because the, the event has already happened. If I understand, today's journalist is completely capable of creating the whole pack, news package, if you will, but in most situations, they'll go out with a photographer. When that doesn't happen, however, they'll have the video skills, they'll have the editing skills, they'll have basically all the requisite skills in order to put the entire piece together, have it ready for broadcast or for syndication? Yeah, so um, here at Emerson, we teach them very, very early on you know, yeah, you might like print and you might feel focused on video, but you are a convergence reporter. So you may have to go out and shoot that story yourself on video. Um, you may have to stop and take a snapshot or, you know, take a snapshot from your video. And you may have to flip that into a print situation. That is ideal. Now, I'm not saying they come with those skills, but it, it more than ever, they come with the understanding of how to make that happen in a way that I think 10 years ago, People were still deciding, I want to be a print reporter. I want to work in on radio. Now they kind of understand that it's fluid. It's a lot more fluid than it's ever been. So we have journalists now that are multi-talented. What does that mean for traditional editors, photographers, people, other people in the newsroom? I think it's a problem. You know, I've, I've actually taught faculty classes before where we, we are teaching faculty who maybe, you know, they worked at a major newspaper but they really don't know how to edit video, you know? So it does mean that editors and the, the people in charge of uh, these students now have to be, they have to know how to grade or how to edit multi-level. And so that does require more training, more education, or uh, some new newsrooms will bring someone in who will do that. You know, where they'll have the video editor looks at a video package and the print editor looks at what goes on the web. But it does require more education. So when you say video package, just for clarity, what is a video package? It's the story. That's, that's when the video, um, there are some elements that come to a video story. That's usually the reporter's voice on tape. 
the reporter's interviews, sometimes natural sound that's in the, the story, and that comes together as a recorded package. And so we call it a package, but it's actually the story, the story on tape. So when I see a reporter on the street with a notebook, that's just one small element of a greater cacophony of, of media that's come together to actually tell the story and be able to put the story down on a series of video tracks or audio tracks and then broadcast it. Is, is that a fair assumption? Yes, and often when you see a reporter out, they're doing for video a live shot. Sometimes they'll do that also for audio. And, and their, live, their live presence is there for a reason. And sometimes that reason is to point out something that's happened. You know, over here, this is happening. Back there, that's happening. They're alive because that, that story will evaporate. That part of it will evaporate. And then on that live shoot, they have collected the elements then to do this recorded package that sometimes they toss to from a live interview or they go back to the station and create for a later show. So when you see them out there, they're usually collecting those elements, stopping sometimes to do a live shot into the station with updates, and then back to work. And so I think sometimes people say, well, what do you do all day if you do a minute 30 package for the 11 o'clock? Well, you are actually collecting interviews sometimes all over the, the, the city. So, you know, it's not like they drop them all in the parking lot and you just interview them quickly. You're, and then you have to kind of put all those elements together. And it literally sometimes takes a two, team of two people to do a video package of a minute 30, um, maybe a couple live shots through a news day. So using that that one one minute 30 second video package, what would be a typical day in, day in the life of a modern journalist? Um, well, if, so if you worked at a TV station, you're going to go to a story meeting and you're going to pitch that story. Um, if you're at a small station, or I would say all but maybe the top 10, you are also going to be responsible for some social media, tweeting, teasing your story, this is what's coming up. This is what we're doing later. And that's also, an, that pulls the audience in. And so you're going to pitch a story, and then you and a teammate, sometimes only you, if you're a backpack journalist, you'll do that by yourself. And a lot of students start with that backpack where they're out doing all of the work by themselves. But you pitch a story, you go out and shoot that story. And the idea is you come up with a story pitch, who I might talk to, who might be the expert in the story, what kind of video might I get, and that's just really your pitch. And then you go out there and the world breaks loose, right? So then you just, you come back with what you get, you know, and you try to make the best of it because so often you don't come back with what you think you're going to get. So a backpack journalist is a one-person show. They literally have everything they need in their backpack. That's it. That's it. They often even shoot their own live shots. So the, that backpack um, will have a, a live feed in it so that they can turn it on and literally shoot their own live shot. And so a lot of young journalists do that in a lot of smaller markets. By the time you get to the top 40 markets, you're not going to be, you're probably not going to be a backpacker. Now, when people are just starting out, do they typically start as a backpack journalist? Um, if they start in a low enough market. Uh, you know, Emerson is uh, like another university I worked for in that they have a very comprehensive program. So our students leave here, they've already done live shots. And live shots sort of your currency in television news. By the time most students leave after four years at a college, they can tell a pretty good video story. But your currency really is that live work, and that just comes from being live. A place like Emerson and another colleges that I've worked for where students are out actually doing live shots, they get to move up a little bit higher, and they might start with a photographer and not start with a backpack because their live currency is that they're pretty good already to be live. So that's kind of how you move up in the business. You know, if you're a good storyteller, the, it all tips on whether or not you're good live. And, and being a good live reporter, 
is really whenever, you know, you become natural on camera. It shouldn't be a performance. I think in the beginning it is because when you start out, you have an IFB in your ear. You have a, you know, someone talking in your ear, usually a producer telling you when they're coming to you, updating you on the story. You have someone shooting a live shot in front of you who is, you have lights on you. You have a mic connected to you. You know, you have a lot of things going on that are very unnatural. So when people first start, it's a performance because they're trying to get through it with all of the elements of things that are happening around them. When you, once you become more seasoned, you just kind of focus in, and now you become kind of who you are. And I always, I always use Diane Sawyer because I think she's the kind of journalist that just leans over and says, let me tell you what happened today. That's where the magic is. The magic is in that kind of performance, not that you know, sort of stiff, recited, rehearsed performance. It's, it has to be rehearsed in the beginning because it's so unnatural to have all these things going while you're telling a story. But ultimately, the magic happens when you literally just start telling the story. For journalists, having a live presence, super huge. What about interview skills? What makes for a really good interview? The very first thing is respect that's sensed from whom, whomever you're interviewing. So I think, and I think this is a challenge sometimes because you have students coming in from environments where everybody looks like them. You know, their life is people who look like them. And so maybe they don't have respect for people from different, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds or different cultures or different races. And so I, I kind of give them a, a little bit of a lecture early on. And I say to them, you're different because you are going to address your bias and try to eliminate it every time it shows its face. If you're still telling racial jokes, if you're still telling jokes, gender jokes, if you're still putting people down, then you're not going to be a good vessel for that story. So your responsibility is every time your bias shows itself, because you have some, we all have them, every time it shows itself, it's up to you to eliminate that, to address it and eliminate it. Because if I show up at a story without respect for whomever it is, then I'm not going to get the story. They can sense in me that I don't respect them, that I don't like who they are, or that I don't get who they are. And I'm not saying we have to understand everyone, but we have to have respect from a humanity standpoint. And... Uh, you know, I, I've had my own challenges with respect and, and just a couple, though, that I can think of. But one woman in particular, a woman in her 30s, had allowed her boyfriend to literally beat her four-year-old to death inside a motel room that was no bigger than a bedroom. So we knew that she had been there the whole time, that she hadn't missed this, that she had been there. And I was interviewing her in jail, and I just, I didn't have any respect for her. I just thought, how can you let this happen? And when I went in there and I started talking to her, and then she started telling me of her own life struggles, right? What she'd been through, her own abuse from the time she can remember, and you know all kinds of tragedy that had touched her life. Then I have to say to myself, if I had this journey, would I be her? Would I be afraid of that boyfriend who had beaten her son? You know, so I think that it's always about trying to figure out how to respect people. That is the first thing that makes you a good interviewer, and then. You know, don't come to an interview and not understand what's going on. I mean, sometimes as a as a broadcast reporter, you're kind of thrown into a story and you don't know all the details yet. You have a lot less confidence when you're telling that story. But if you can walk around the neighborhood or walk around wherever this thing happened and talk to all the people and kind of absorb that stuff, then you come with a little bit of, you know, confidence. You bring a little bit of weight to it, a little bit of um, I would say sort of a responsibility to tell the story. So, but I think you come with respect and then you have good questions because you know what's, what you're talking about. On that same token, there's some things you don't get. You know, like I think 
I, I just I, I know people who think that if there's someone who is a terrorist or someone who is a white supremacist, that that they shouldn't have any airtime, you know, that they shouldn't have an opportunity to be on the air. And I don't think we should give them a platform. But I can tell you personally, I'm from southern Indiana, and I have held a microphone as a black woman while a man is using the N-word. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not mad. <laughs> I'm holding it close to his mouth, and I'm looking at my photog, and I'm hoping that they are getting all of that because I told you this happened. Now I'm showing you that it happened. I might leave with my feelings hurt, but this guy or this person, this woman, if they want to use that kind of language, I want to roll on it. you know. And no, I don't want to give them a platform to recruit people. The Klan still exists, whether we allow them to talk or not. Reporters much like police officers, frequently see the nastier side of life. We hear about PTSD with, with police officers, with the military. What can a reporter do to, A, keep their emotions in check, but keep themselves from getting that thousand-yard stare, from burning out, from constantly seeing some of the more negative parts of humanity? It's difficult, but it's, it's necessary that you don't check out. You know, of course, I can't let my opinion infiltrate a story. But I also have to bring my humanity or it's a story nobody wants to hear me tell. And so I think about uh, another part of Indiana. There's a lot of driving and, you know, there's a lot of snowy roads. And I remember a year where I had done already had already covered three teenagers who had slid off the road and died. And it was it's tragic. And at this time I had my own teenagers. So it was it was tragic. And I remember the day that I came in, they said it happened again and this particular girl had slid off, the, slid off the road and went underneath a, a semi-truck that was bolted to the ground on a farm. I mean, if she had gone in any other direction, she would have been fine, but this particular thing happened and it decapitated her and she went under. So we usually go to those scenes, but the police clean that up. You know, we go to the scene, there's no, there's no wreckage or, you know, anything like that. But there's usually like some a makeshift memorial, there are people there, whatever. And my photographer had said to me, go around the side of the truck so we can kind of show, you know, the angle of the truck on the farm. And when I went around the truck, I literally slipped in some blood that had not been cleaned up. And it just, I came undone. I mean, I literally um, did my story. I went home and I literally took a week off work. I took a vacation week because I am human and I just thought I can't do another one of these stories and not... But 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 I also consider the stories, especially of, of dead children, those are holy stories. If I get a chance to tell a story about someone who's died, I consider that holy. And so I want to do the very best job I can do. So you've been to a variety of scenes, which could be difficult for your, your average person. But as a professional journalist, this is just another Monday. You're able to put your emotions in that jar and, and do your job despite the circumstances. How do you train yourself to do that? We're talking about you know, intense human emotions. We all have emotions. Mm -hmm. How do you put your emotions on hold in particularly horrifying situations? It's your responsibility as a journalist, and so it's a careful balance because your, your, humanity, your humanity makes you a better storyteller, so you can't really put that up. But if I'm sobbing along with the person, then, then, then I change the story you know so you're doing your best uh, there are many times I've cried when I'm doing a story or interviewing somebody who's been devastated uh, but I'm trying not to because I don't want to change the story with my emotion or you know cause it to go a different direction because I'm 
because of my emotions. But my humanity has to be close enough to the surface that I can make the story relatable. And I think the genius of being a really good reporter is that if I cover someone from a different background than the majority of my viewers, if my story connects their hearts, then they, they don't see the color or the difference or the social class difference. And so the challenge of a journal, journalist and also the privilege is to figure out how to connect these people because, you know, in our humanity, if someone in our family dies, we, we get that, you know. And so it's trying to lead with humanity and tell the stories and putting the emotions as far back as you can and keep your humanity at the surface because that's what makes you a good storyteller. You just can't be without it. Now, to be a good journalist, you have to work with other people. You mentioned working with photographers. How do you train people to work with others? It would seem to be a journalist that it's a fairly egocentric occupation, that it, it's up to you as the journalist to go get the story, that there's a certain independent style and quality about journalists. So we've got that on one hand, but the other hand, it seems to be very much a team effort. How do you rectify those two, especially if you're new in the industry? It's, it's also that sort of balancing act because if you think about it, I'm the reporter, and in a way I own the story. Who's ever shooting the story? The photog, they own the story. The anchor is going to toss to the story so that if my story is inaccurate or somehow embarrassing to the station, that anchor feels like they're then connected to the story. So there's all this volatility around the possibility that the story could go wrong. It, and, the, and the reporter does wear most of that. You know, it's like you're the face of whatever goes wrong. But I think the thing that's hardest to learn and the most important thing to learn is you, you do deal with difficult personalities, and they may consider your personality difficult, right? So, if, if, you know, you, you can't get in there with a lot of um, attitude about how, you know, we're gonna, this is all going to go my way because you really have to negotiate. Because especially working with a photographer, if they don't respect you or they don't think you're going the right direction or you haven't asked their consideration when they're maybe the expert photographer, then you don't get the best story. So the idea is to figure out, you know, I tell, I tell my students who call me from newsrooms crying all the time because of something that's happened with a producer or a photographer, and it is an aggressive business. It's hard on young girls when they get out there and in young men too, but it's, it's an aggressive business, and they call me crying from the newsroom, and I'm just like, get around them get around them. The ones who don't have good intentions, get around them and get your story done. The other people, you know, spend some time trying to understand. You know, I had a photographer when I um, worked at one of my first stations that I thought was so difficult to get along with. And I asked another person, I said, how do you get along with him? And she said, bake him some brownies. Don't worry about it. He's had a rough path. And I thought, that's simple. You know, that's simple. I'm making too big a deal of this. So it brings up the power of empathy. Is empathy discussed in journalism schools? It's something that's taught. I mean, what is the role of empathy in journalism? Yeah, it is. It's um, it's necessary in journalism schools, and it should be taught that that there is a role for that. And there are some there are some places that I walk into because of how I look and who I am, and you know what I bring to the table. That I walk into that I have a little bit more privilege. You know, like if if I go to certain areas that I might have an easier way in. There are some other places that I that I you know, have to work harder to get people to talk to me or to interview with me. So I think that empathy, there are some places where you have deep empathy because something's happened to you or because of your own experience or because your life mirrors that life of the person you're interviewing. You need to work on the empathy with the people that you don't get, you know, because that too is another kind of thing. And, you know, I, 
I always tell the story to my students that I had to walk up to a house where the, the Klan was, and there was a big Confederate flag, and the, knocked on the door, the guy looked at me like, you didn't see the flag? I mean, why are you here? Right? But as soon as I talked to him and let him know, I'm going to let you tell your story. You know, I didn't have to tell him I don't get it. But then I was able to, to get an interview from him. There are some places I can walk in. As a black woman, I can't walk up to the Klan and, and have easy access. But if I get, and I have interviewed several people in white supremacist groups because I am from a place where there is a lot of that. I can figure out how to negotiate with someone, you know, because they're interested in me telling their story. And I have to figure out how to do that without showing that judgment on my face. You know, like I don't get this because honestly, I mean, the, I, I covered a Klan rally in Charlottesville before the, the one where there was a death. I was looking at some of the young people involved, and, I, and they were just, I was interviewing, and they were so polite and everything, and I thought, I don't think they've bought into this whole thing about hating people of color. I mean, I didn't feel like they'd bought into it, but they were people who ultimately gave me interviews. So um, empathy is part of it. Some places you have to work harder, and some places you just walk right into because of your experiences. Recently, the term fake news has come to the public eye, and with that would be rush to judgment. You know, I don't like the, the phrase rush to judgment because... I think that once a journalist gets a story that they have vetted fully, as, as fully as they can, and they're sure that it's true, it's their responsibility to report it. And if they don't report it, if they hold on to it because they think there's another shoe to drop or there's more information, which I don't know how they would even know, then they are unfairly editing what has happened to the public. So an example of that would be the Native American uh, man and the student from Kentucky, the conflict of the Lincoln Memorial. The, the media got all kinds of uh, bad press for rushing to judgment. The first initial video showed the standoff where this Kentucky student and the Native American man were face to face and it appeared the kid was sneering at him. And so we report that. We, we vet it and we report it. That's all we had. We didn't know there was a longer video. And then later a longer video comes out and it shows that the Native American man walked up to the, the student. So now, maybe that changed some people's opinion about who was at fault, right? But as a reporter, all I can do is report what I know. And then if I'm honest, I update it when it's time to update it. And then we have a little longer video where these um, Hebrew Israelites, as they call themselves, were using all these abusive words toward um, the Kentucky students. And someone said to me, after that video ran, well, did something else potentially provoke the Hebrew Israelites? We don't know. We don't know if the video is infinite. <laughs> Does it go on forever? When a reporter gets a video like that, to hold on to it for some reason, like you know there's more. I mean, I don't know how you would even know that. We vet it. We see if it's true. We report it. If it changes, then we report that. We update it. So we don't rush to judgment. We update the news. If we vetted it, and it's fully vetted, it's news, it's not fair for us not to report it. One of the questions that's come up about fake news is the vetting process. What actually is the process used to vet a fact? As a reporter, you have a lot of options. You know, you're, the first thing I'm going to do is if I get something that, um, like, a, that like the video that I referred to, I'm going to try to see if there's more to it. I'm going to ask the person who shot it and sent it to me, you know, I'm going to try to see are they leaning one way or another on their social media? Do they have an agenda? I'm going to try to filter all that stuff through. Um, but there are lots of ways. And, you know, facts are facts. 
but they are changed by new information. A journalist who's doing their job might report one thing. Like if I'm reporting, like when I was, I think my first job for CNN, I was reporting on this body count at the cemetery where they were putting bodies inside of other bodies. And initially, it was a certain number. As the day went on, it got bigger. The number was bigger. Would someone say then, I shouldn't have reported the story because I didn't have all of the bodies until the end of the day? No, I was updating it as I went along. Facts can be changed by new information, but a, a reporter rushing to judgment is the last thing they want to do. I mean, I cannot live it down. If I'm on a network and I report something that is false, or if somebody, you know, kind of bamboozles me and I end up on the news saying something that's not true, nobody wants that. But you do have this um, kind of journalist, sort of this paparazzi journalist that wants to cause trouble, you know, kind of like, I call them paparazzi journalists because it's like the paparazzi who just wants to take a bunch of pictures of bad things, you know. And so, and I, I, I've worked with people like that who want to challenge everyone in a way that's not fair. I do think that that their facts are facts and a good journalist vets them as far out as they can. And then they have to decide is this truth or is it not. Cheryl Owsley Jackson, any final thoughts? I think the modern journalist needs to do first everything they can to eliminate the bias in their lives so that they can be a clean vessel to tell the news. We all have biases, but we should be eliminating. Journalists are special people. We should get rid of that. And then we need to expose ourselves to people of all classes and cultures and races and religions so that we know about humanity, how, how humanity connects those things, so that we can tell the most unbiased story with the most compassion that we can to reach as many people as possible. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. We spoke with Cheryl Owsley Jackson, an experienced TV, radio, and print reporter who serves as a journalist in residence at Emerson College. I'm Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. We had studio help from David Craighead and editorial direction from Andrew Cassidy. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communication. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.